Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. If you were to ask any counselor or therapist what the bedrock of a healthy relationship is, I would be willing to bet money that the answer you would get, or at least very near the top of those answers, would be communication. Now, parents and grandparents, how many of you have ever had to repeat yourself to your children? Time for school, time for church, time for bed. You're still not ready? Do your homework, get dressed, let the dog out. This is the fourth time I've asked, how was practice? What did you learn today? Who are you hanging out with? Are you even listening to me? And you know, the more we as parents or grandparents or aunts or uncles repeat ourselves, the more children might start to think that we're nagging or being overprotective or even expecting too much from them. Wouldn't it be nice, friends, if our families were always copacetic, always on the same page, always patient and attentive and obedient? Well, I'm sorry to say to you, brothers and sisters in Christ, but that sort of perfect family dynamic does not exist this side of heaven. Communication breaks down, and we lose our tempers. We forget important details. We say things we don't mean we hurt each other's feelings, and we fail to care for the people we love in the way that they deserve. We are sinners, and sin leaves our relationships in a whole world of mess. God help us. Now, for three weeks now, as we just said, we've traced through the Old Testament a thread, a thread which demonstrates the damage which man's sin leaves in its wake. Through the various father-son dynamics present across the biblical narrative, we can see clearly a picture of betrayal, pride, selfishness, broken relationships, and unmet expectations. Adam and Cain, Abraham and Ishmael, David and Absalom. Each of them displayed the wages of sin and man's utter inability to follow God's command. Yet even as they did so, we heard also how they were, all of them, allegories for a much greater narrative at play in the scriptures. They were little picture representations of a big picture story that God was and is still writing. And today, this last midweek before Christmas, we're going to zoom out and take a look at this big picture. For though these men were sinners, they were all sons of God's promise. They were part of the line of Israel, his chosen people of old. Now Israel is a rather, is a rather interesting figure in the Bible. All at once, the name Israel can refer to Jacob, the son of Isaac and the grandson of Abraham. The kingdom, which for a time served as the dwelling place of God's chosen people. And, as mentioned, the name for the people themselves. They were called the Israelites. In the book of Exodus, as God calls the prophet Moses to confront wicked Pharaoh on behalf of his people, he gives Moses the following words to say. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go, that he may serve me. 
here with these words, God establishes clearly his desired covenantal relationship with his people. Specifically, he would want to be father to them, defending them, feeding them, bringing them up in the way that they should go, and giving freely of himself for their sake. In return, the people of Israel were to be as an adopted son to God, the very first of his heritage which would set the example for his children to come after. They were to obey him, trust him, honor him by their words and deeds, and prosper his household. As we have seen clearly in the scriptures, God kept his end of the covenantal promise. Israel did not. As God's firstborn son, Israel was frequently disobedient, unruly, idolatrous, and self-serving. He lusted after wealth, and he abused the poor. He practiced witchcraft, and he put more stock in worldly princes than in the Lord his God. He would often forget God's word of promise, and he would often disregard his law. He would even reject and kill the Lord's prophets. Throughout his long and storied history, Israel answered God's continued faithfulness with nothing but apathy and disdain. But this breakdown in communication, as it were, was not the fault of God their father. For all of Israel's transgressions, all the times that they went astray, the Lord continually admonished his son, calling him to repent through the law and through the voice of the prophets. We heard in our readings this evening, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away. My people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. He lamented, oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. Those of you who have experienced this firsthand know that there is nothing more heartbreaking for a parent than to watch their child marching headlong toward pain and destruction, powerless to protect them. Adam could not subdue Cain's pride. Abraham failed twice to manipulate Ishmael's inheritance. David's limp-wristed response to Tamar's assault set Absalom down a path of murder and rebellion. Israel's story is positively littered with broken relationships with sons who hate their fathers and fathers who fail and disappoint their sons. But God is anything but powerless. He would not fail his firstborn son. For his foolish disregard for God's word and commands, Israel had earned rightly the punishment of death. He needed a redeemer. He needed someone to tear down the wall that their breakdown in communication had set up between them and their heavenly father. And so God, being a loving and a compassionate father, as we read, did what Adam and Abraham and David all failed to do. God set out to personally reconcile his foolish, straying, adopted son to himself by sending none other than his only begotten son to be his redeemer. Jesus came not as an enforcer, not as a judge, but as a brother. That means he came in flesh and blood 
like ours. And in that flesh and blood, Jesus ministered to Israel. He taught Israel. He tended Israel's wounds, healing sicknesses, driving out demons, and raising the dead. But above all, Jesus preached repentance to Israel, urging them to be prepared to receive their Father's coming kingdom with humility and contrition. But what did Israel do? He ignored his brother's warning, scoffing at Jesus' words, begrudging his generosity, and rejecting his good news. Though Jesus came as Messiah to them, God's firstborn son would betray Jesus and nail him to a cross, communicating in no uncertain terms that they wanted nothing more to do with their father and leaving his house. That's what they wanted, and that's what they deserved. Expulsion and exclusion for their frequent wickedness. But God had something else in mind for them. Being an attentive father, God surely knew how Israel would react to the presence of the Christ. And so, in an act which, by all rights, ought to have been the last nail in their coffin, God instead burst open the tomb raising Jesus from the dead on the third day and securing for all who believe in him free remission of their sins. Because of Christ's mighty sacrifice on Calvary's cross, Israel now also rises to newness of life, refreshed and restored by him who came to them as brother to bear their guilt and shame and to pay for it all on the cross. But more than that, Israel has now been made again to thrive. And no, I'm not speaking of the new worldly nation of Israel. I'm talking about all of you. You who are baptized into Christ. You who were washed clean and adopted as sons and daughters, given the right to call God your father. You are the new Israel. You have been given Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. St. Paul writes in his letter to the church in Galatia that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. As such, you, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, you have been made part of this blessed inheritance. In this season of Advent, you hear again that call to repent. And as you do so, you remember Christ, your brother, who came to take away your sin and to bring you back into the Father's house. And yet, as you look back at his first coming, you are still urged to look forward to his coming again. With all the confidence and privilege of God's very own children, you are called to come into his house and to hear him as he communicates to you the free gifts of forgiveness, life, and salvation, which are yours for Jesus' sake. 
As we move now to the celebration of Christmas, may it be with a heart full of gratitude, looking forward to Christ's return, as St. John the Apostle encourages us. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Come, Lord Jesus, our Savior and brother. Amen. May the peace of God, which far surpasses all understanding, guard and keep your hearts and minds in this same Christ Jesus unto life everlasting. Amen.